0: New ideas, thought-leading opinions and the latest ways of working. This is the School Leadership Podcast.
1: Hello, you're listening to the School Leadership Podcast, brought to you by NAHT and NAHT Edge. This month's episode is a technology special in which we ask whether technology can support learning or if it's simply an enormous distraction. We consider what the next big edtech development is likely to be. And also discuss whether or not mobile devices should be banned from schools entirely.
0: Engaging content and revealing insights. In conversation with James Bowen.
1: Our guest this month is Daisy Christodoulou. Daisy will be well known to our regular podcast listeners. She's a former teacher and the author of a number of education-based books. Daisy's also currently the Director of Education at No More Marking, a provider of online comparative judgement. In her latest book, Teachers vs Tech, out next month, Daisy examines why EdTech, despite all its potential, hasn't yet had the transformative impact on education that it's long promised. Our Director of Policy, James Bowen, met with Daisy to find out more. So you've got a, a brand
2: new book out. What, what's it all about?
0: So, yeah, I've got a book out called Teachers vs Tech and it's all about education technology and it's all about the good and bad applications of technology in the classroom. So I think my main argument is there are lots of really, really good ways to use technology in the classroom. But unfortunately, um, a lot of the most popular ways and a lot of the ways of being backed by really big companies are ones that aren't as effective. So what I try and talk about is what's the the evidence, what's the science behind really effective uses of technology and how can we use some of those and not get drawn into some of the fads, some of the pseudoscience. So it's not an anti-tech book, it's not a pro-tech book. Um, it's just trying to look at how can technology help um, and in what ways does it not help
2: and I'm gonna ask you way I going to let's talk about what teachers can do to make sure it does help yeah. but before we do that I, one, one of the things you talk about in the book is how for decades really mm-hmm. we've spent millions if not billions yeah. perhaps, of pounds yeah, yeah. on technology um, in schools and actually it's hard to find evidence of it having a huge impact. I mean you use the phrase, you say something about there's been no appreciable improvements in educational achievement mm. as a result of technology.
0: Why do you think
2: that is despite all that money that's been spent?
0: So that is a great question and that is one of the questions I set out to answer that there really has been investment in this. And in certain, you know, jurisdictions at certain times really heavy investment. And one of the ones I talk about is when I started teaching there were big big investments with interactive whiteboards. And none of it seems to really make a dent in, in achievement levels. <laughs> and, and so why is that? And my fundamental reason is a lot of it is brought in without any understanding of the science of learning, without any understanding of, it, of, 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 of how children learn, of how humans learn, of how humans think, and how the technology is going to support that. Um, so in, in, there are plenty of cases where I see the technology being brought in, and I think it will be actively damaging. It's going to actively uh, make it harder for us to learn. Um, and I talk about those in the book too. So I, I think ultimately that's it. And I think you, you can't eliminate the fact from this that a lot of the decision-making about what to buy and what to spend is often driven by big tech companies who are probably more interested in getting their products into classrooms and are not thinking as much about what it actually takes to make those products work for, for students.
2: And despite, if you like, the, the disappointments yeah. we've had, is it fair to say, I got the sense you still remain quite optimistic mm-hmm that technology can have a positive impact, even if we haven't really seen yeah. the benefits yeah. so far.
0: Yeah, I know that's very true. I, I am. And I wanted to write this because I think one of the things I think is because there have been so many repeated failures of, of, of technology, I think there are a lot of teachers who are like, forget it, I'm not interested. And I understand that because there have been um, some, some real errors and I, I catalogue some of the worst ones in the book. But one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is to say, well, look, don't give up. There are things that can work here. There are good ways of doing this. Um, and I would say, look, I work for, a, for an organisation. We use technology to, to do assessment better. And there are things technology can do that even the very best teacher with the most time in the world can't achieve. So I am definitely still pro-technology. I think there are good ways you can, you can use it. And I, I think it would be nice if those, those good ways got as much a hearing as, as some of the ways that are less effective.
2: And are there particular mistakes in the past yeah. do you think we can learn from?
0: Yeah. So the classic one, which a lot of people, most people will accept and admit now is just splurging on hardware. And that's the real classic one. And I think Bill Gates himself has said that, you know, just, just giving kids devices is not, not a great idea. Um, you can look at the one laptop per child initiative, um, which aimed to get all you know, children in developing companies, countries online and get them hooked up with a cheap laptop. Again, you know, very negligible impacts on, on, on achievement. You can see ones in, 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 uh, in in developed countries too, getting tablets, getting devices, just throwing hardware at the problem is, is not the answer. So if there's one big thing to take away, it's that. And then you've got to think about you know what what, what is it you want to achieve? What do you want to, to do with the technology? I talk about a couple of things I think are, are really really positive. One of the things I talk about that I think is really positive, very hard to do without technology. I talk a bit about um, spaced repetition and how you can get spaced re- repetition algorithms. Um, to help you learn learn things and remember them. So that sounds a bit fancy. It really isn't. If you want to learn a, a, a set of, of, of vocabulary in a foreign language, if you want to learn some historical dates, uh, if you've got just a set of things you, you, you need to remember, then the traditional way, you know, you might have used flashcards. If you put the flashcards effectively into a flashcard app and those are presented to you using a space repetition algorithm, the algorithm can work out the best way to present those um, <clears throat> flashcards to you. It will present them at the ideal moment for you to learn them, which is essentially when you're just about to forget it. and it will give you more practice on the ones you're weaker with and not, not as much practice with the ones that you're stronger on. So little things like that, which in some ways sound quite simple, um, those kind of things have, have a huge impact. So for me it's about thinking what are the, what's the kind of, you know what's the software, what are the programs we want to run on the hardware rather than just splurging on the hardware and saying that that's going to solve all our problems.
2: So if you know, you're know you a teacher or a school leader and you're thinking, I really want to embrace technology mm-hmm. in the classroom, yeah. really see that as yeah. a, a part of our strategy, are there certain sort of principles yeah. you think people should have in mind
1: yeah.
2: when starting on that? I mean, I know people yeah. already have technology in schools, so but yeah. are there some underlying principles that people should be considering when... Yeah, bringing definitely. So
0: so when I talk about, as I say, you know, think, think about don't, don't splurge on the hardware, think about what you want to achieve, what's the, 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 the actual... Uh, you know what are the software you're going to be using, so what programs do you want to be using so that's one principle. The other one I talk about is what ratio assuming you are going to need devices at some point, what ratio do you need so there's a lot of talk about needing one to one and actually the ratio in the UK and a lot of developed companies, countries is very high. Most schools do have quite a, quite a, a number of devices per per, per, per pupil, maybe not quite one to one but 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 maybe not far off it. Um, and my point would be do you need that actually for what you're trying to achieve? is that necessary? So I don't think you need to start with the assumption, oh, we need a tablet for everyone. You need to be thinking about what is it we want to achieve and then how much do we need. I talk about how if you're using it for, you know, the kind of flashcard apps, the space repetition, probably 20, 30 minutes a day per, per child is good. And so in that case, do, do you need, you know, does everyone need a tablet? I also think really important to think about the kind of device if you're thinking about the, the tablet or the computer, uh, the computer or the laptop. Um, I think there is still a role for, like, for a desktop or a laptop I think the idea that everything's got to be a tablet. I think you've got to remember as well tablets are harder to type on. So if you do want students to be inputting a lot of um, a lot of writing or whatever, that's 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 tricky with a with a tablet. So I think you want to think about about those questions. Um and as I say then thinking particularly about the software and I talk about a lot of the programs that I like. Um I have a checklist at the end of the book where I talk about uh, if you're evaluating any new edtech product, what should you be looking at? What are the things to be to be thinking about? And one of the things I talk about is um, I mean they're all, you know, they're all sort of. Uh, I think things that I hope people will find helpful. But one of the things I talk about is: is it asking you to? Does this program? Uh, does it? Does it say you can? D- don't worry about memory. Don't worry about remembering things because you can always look it up. Or is it actively finding a way to help students remember things? And that for me is a real fault line between, if you like, good tech, bad tech. <laughs> that I think a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of the software out there is saying look, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about remembering things because you can just look it up on Google. Um, And my argument is actually that most of the best edtech products are not doing that. They're actually saying you need to know these things. You need them in long-term memory. You can't outsource them to Google because you're using the facts to think with. So you're going to need to find a way of remembering them. So the really good edtech is saying let's find a way of making the memorization uh, as fun, as efficient, as effective as possible. So look, something like um, Timetables Rockstars is a great example of that. I feel like there are people out there who would say you don't need to know your timetables anymore. Can you just look them up? Um, that's not the case you need the times tables in long-term memory to be able to tackle more complex math problems we've only got limited working memory when you're facing a math problem you're always having to stop to look up the times tables you're not going to get very far your working memory is overloaded by the time you get to the end of the problem you've forgotten where you were at the beginning (laughs) so times tables rockstar is saying you do need those times tables facts in long-term memory let's make it really fun let's make it really engaging let's make it as, as interesting as possible Um, and, you know, there is a a bit of gamification to it, which I think is is fun, um, you know, to make it interesting. So for me, that's another fault line between the good use of technology and the less good uses.
2: And I want to explore this um, thing about looking it up and and Googling a bit more. It was on my list of things to to (laughs) talk to you about, and it's come up now. So I think, yeah, most people would see that with the maths side of things, would accept, you know, actually, you need to know your times tables in terms of your fluency to apply that to more complex problems. I think in maths... That almost mostly seems instinctively correct. I suppose the challenge is a bit more if we talk about a a subject like history, for example, where someone might say, well, look, you know, actually children don't need to memorize the Battle of Hastings was in 1066 because that kind of thing. A, there's so much to remember and B, look, everyone's going to have a pocket device so I can Google that and I can find that kind of thing out within seconds. So why why is it important? for children to... And I know we're showing a little bit from the ed tech, but I think this is, is, yeah. is, is, is linked. This thing about remembering factual information and facts, because you're quite strong, you know, you're yeah. clear that that's important still.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, no, I think you, you, you do raise a very important point, that, that distinction between maths and everything else. And, and I think you're right to raise that, actually, because I think there's probably a lot of things people would accept in maths and then think, but really for everything else... And I think that manifests itself in the edtech world in that a lot of the really good, really effective edtech products are maths ones. <laughs> and a lot of the ones I talk about, I had to kind of, you know, uh, really search often to find things outside of, I would say maths and foreign languages are the two that are really probably have the mm. best the best things going for them. And I think that's because probably in maths and foreign languages, and I say this in the book, we accept more that there is just a body of knowledge you have to learn and you just do have to memorize it and you have to be fairly fluent with it. And also, there's not too much debate or dispute about what that knowledge should be. Most people are generally happy, okay, you want to learn a foreign language, you better learn the vocabulary, you want to learn the maths, you better learn the the time tables. You're absolutely right that when you push into subjects like uh, literature, history, the humanities, it gets more complicated. Um, I do talk about this in the the book, though, but what you need, you still need in those subjects, um, basically any skill you want to acquire, if you break it down, you can see it's composed of sub-skills and of knowledge. I think the challenge is in subjects like history and the humanities we probably have less research than in maths and foreign languages about what those component parts are and how we should be best teaching them but if we take history as an example I think it is still very important to know the dates and I think the reason why it's important to know the dates is that what the dates are giving you is a framework to think about history so if you've got uh, if you've Got an understanding. If you if you say you know read a book that gives you an understanding of the broad sweep of history, and you've also then <clears throat> memorised some key dates about the the broad sweep of history and when things happen, what that means is is when you're reading other things um, or you're learning about other things, if someone mentions the 14th century or the Industrial Revolution, you've got hooks to hang it on. So having that baseline of knowledge is helping you to make sense of of everything else. So. It's really easy to denigrate like the memorisation of dates, but memorising enough of them and, and some key ones, that, as I say, give you that, 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 that framework, it that gives you an understanding that lets you put other things into context. So I think we often talk about, you know, people talk about chronological awareness of being important. And for me, what underlies chronological awareness is knowing some dates. And as I say, I think when you look at a lot of complex skills and what are the complex skills we want to achieve in history, we want our students to be able to write good analytical essays where they're really understanding the motivations of of historical actors, they're understanding the the big forces that are are operating that it's hard to do that without an understanding of when things are happening the chronology of things happening also what the, the broad historical knowledge gives you is just the ability to make comparisons across different eras, different times, that's something that allows you to deepen your understanding too and you cannot outsource that to the cloud because I mean, I, I, I talk about a couple of reasons why you can't outsource this kind of information to the cloud. So, one is you're using the, the working memory. Our working memories are very limited and are easily overwhelmed. So, imagine this in the simplest sense of trying to read, uh, uh, trying to read a novel where you don't understand every fifth word. Now, look, you didn't need the internet to be able to look up the words. You could do that, you know, years ago with a dictionary. But whatever resource you use, if you are stopping every fifth word to look a word up. Not only is that not a very pleasant experience, not only is that quite demotivating, but you also have limited working memory capacity left over to do the really interesting things which we want our students to do, like reading between the lines, uh, making inferences about what the author's trying to achieve, maybe spotting the author's bias. If you are stuck at the level of, I'm seeing the phrase industrial revolution or 14th century and I just have nothing, I have no idea what that means, (laughs) uh, and I have to go and look it up all the time, your working memory is quickly going to get overwhelmed. You're going to lose understanding of the piece. You're not going to be able to do any of those complex, higher-order uh, thoughts that we want. So, yes, you can look things up. The paradox is you need the knowledge to be able to look it up. If you're looking things up all the time, you lose the ability to, to, to really dig into some of those deeper skills. Um, there's, I think as adults, we look things up successfully. Because we have a lot of knowledge to begin with, is that about right? So yeah. I
2: need to know what to Google absolutely. in order to find, yeah. and also then yeah. once I've done the search, in order yeah. to make sense of what I, I, I need some yeah. underlying knowledge to know Abs- what questions Abs- to ask, and then to be able to absolutely. work out what it is I'm absolutely. Being...
0: So in the chapter on just looking it up, I give a couple of separate reasons why you need to look it up, mm. why well, you can't, why well, you can't look it up, uh, you can't just rely on that. And one is the overwhelming working memory, and, and the other is you know you need to know something to know about the topic, to know what to search for and to be able to interpret what you get back. And that's true of traditional re- reference sources. That's not just true of online sources. So one of the best studies on this was done back in the late 80s with dictionaries. And the, uh, the, the, the researchers gave a bunch of eight-year-olds uh, a bunch of words they didn't know, said, look these words up in a dictionary, use them in a sentence. Now, they all knew technically how to use a dictionary. So they all looked the words up correctly and found the definition. They didn't know what the words in the definition meant. So they're caught in a kind of loop like what are you meant to do look up all the words in that definition (laughs) where do you go and they end up writing sentences that don't really make sense. So sentences like um, you know uh, I was meticulous about falling off the cliff (laughs) you know I relegated my pen pal's letter to her house Uh, because they're looking up words like relegated and meticulous they're finding bits in the definition and just trying to cobble together some some meaning of it that doesn't doesn't really work. So The problem is, but for adults, dictionaries are great. Like, I'm not knocking dictionaries. Dictionaries are a fantastic invention, in the same way that the internet and Google searches are a fantastic invention. But it isn't just about the technical knowledge of how to construct a search or how the alphabetical principle works. It's about having some understanding of what it is you're looking up when you find a definition. And there's one sense in which, um, you you know, actually then online reference sources actually can be worse than print reference sources. Um, And that is in the way that, online reference sources can often adapt themselves to your misconceptions. So I would say all reference sources are actually not that great a way for novices to learn, but online reference sources we're realizing literally in the last few years can be particularly dangerous. So there's a literature, for example, research literature that's developing on the role of YouTube in the resurgence of flat earth theory. So I don't know if you know this, but flat earth theory has made a real resurgence in the last few years. There's a big community of people, um, you know, lots of them in America, lots of them, you you know, putting out lots of youtube videos about flat earth and what is the problem with this well look imagine you get a student and you send them off to do some research on 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 on, on the earth um and you know, the earth and the sun and their relationship to each other and you get them to do some scientific research online the, the if you if you got them to do it with a print reference source if they're a novice it's entirely possible a print reference source they might get the wrong end of the stick they might not understand it um, but if you get them to do it online not only is it the same problem that they'll get the wrong end of stick; they might not understand it because they haven't got the background knowledge to, to make sense of it. The problem is that they will develop a misconception and that then, because of the way that a lot of online algorithms work, all of the things that they read about it going forward are adapting themselves to their misconception. So this is one of the things a lot of these researchers have found about YouTube, that you can start off with quite a mainstream video on YouTube and its algorithm essentially gets more and more sensationalist. <laughs> And so they've done these things politically where you can start with a mainstream liberal or a mainstream conservative video and then 10 videos in you're in conspiracy theories. And there's something similar with the flat earth. that you start off with perhaps something quite mainstream and you end up in the fringes of the internet and, you know, in some guy's basement about how, you know, it's dome theory of, 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 of the earth. And so I think the, the, that's a problem which we are probably only just starting to see. And that's something I worry about, that if we are just saying you can always just look it up, Um, It isn't just that there's a lot of misinformation online. Sure, there's a lot of misinformation, you know, not online. It's that there's lots of ways in which algorithms are being set up to reinforce your misconceptions, to reinforce these ideas. That, you know, once you've watched one video, you're going to be bombarded with 10 others like it. In a way that that child who had the wrong wrong meaning about meticulous, they're not going to be followed up with 10 more sentences that are all going to reinforce their misunderstanding of the word meticulous or the word relegated. So I think that's something about looking it up, which is another reason to be wary of, a newer reason. So I've written quite a lot about the problems of looking it up in the past, but this is a newer reason, as I say, that I think we're only just starting to see some of the impact of.
2: And I want to bring us back in a moment to talk about <laughs> the classroom again and about yeah. the kind of principles, mm-hmm. but... I, I want to just explore a little bit further. We talk, you mentioned there about the kind of the knowledge skills thing, and I know you've written about this a lot in the past, and perhaps we're, we're wandering a little bit yeah. away from tech, but I think it's interesting and it's worth talking about because one of the things you say in the book is about being wary about talking about a balance between knowledge yeah. and skills. And that was interesting for me because yeah. I, I often do that. Yeah. I often yeah. say, well, you know, it's about a balance. It's not yeah. one or the other. Yeah. Um, but you say you think we're be better off thinking in terms mm-hmm. of knowledge as a pathway to skill. Yeah. Um, perhaps you can just say a little bit more about what you meant by that
0: yeah so this was a bit of a book actually I really enjoyed writing and I was really keen on writing it because I think like you I, I, I agree that knowledge and skills I think what we both know is knowledge and skills are both important mm-hmm. if you see what I mean so when we talk about a balance often I think what we're trying to signal is we think they both matter but I think the balance metaphor is unhelpful and I think the balance metaphor is unhelpful and I have a diagram in the book where I think sometimes we think of knowledge and skills as a pendulum And we think, oh, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, the pendulum tipped too far towards skills. And so it does need to be brought back a little bit. But let's not make sure it tips too far towards knowledge. You know, let's find the happy medium. And I respect the kind of ideas behind that. Why it's an unhelpful metaphor is I kind of think it just assumes, well, if we do a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of skills, we'll get to the right point. And my point is that knowledge is not opposed to skills. Um, Knowledge is the pathway to skill. It is through acquiring knowledge, more and more knowledge in deeper ways, that we acquire skills. So it's what I was saying a bit before about history. How do we acquire the skill of writing an analytical essay? How do we acquire the skill of solving a complex maths problem? How do we acquire the skill of reading? <laughs> well, in a lot of cases, when you decompose it, when you break it down into its constituent parts, it involves knowledge. It involves knowledge of words, knowledge of times tables, knowledge of historical dates. Um, and it isn't just that, you know, the knowledge compounds and builds up and gets more and more complex. Um, but that, when you break it down, is a large part of it. And so I think the risk when you talk about knowledge and skills of being in opposition to each other is you end up with um, some, some kind of bad practice teaching knowledge and bad practice teaching skills. <laughs> and you end up with kind of half and half. And so I think, um, you know, one of the examples I use, I'm not sure if it's in, in, in the book, but I talk about essentially it becomes, well, we'll have a 20 minute lecture and that's our knowledge and then we'll have a 20-minute independent project, and that's our skills. <laughs> and my point is, I don't think either of those are great. I think they're both not great practice. So whereas if I think you conceptualise knowledge as a pathway to skill, I think you get something much more interesting, which is probably, you can call it direct instruction, but maybe a nicer way of phrasing it is whole-class interactive teaching. So if I just take those two extremes, I think lectures and independent projects are both in a, you know, not 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 great. And for me, the whole-class interactive teaching... is a a much better model. And that's something that I think when you conceptualise knowledge as a pathway to skill, you're much more likely to come across. And the idea of whole-class interactive teaching is, yes, it is teacher-led, but it's not about masses of teacher talk. Because the problem with the lecture model, and maybe the caricature of the traditional knowledge model, is you know what lectures are confusing (laughs) and they are overwhelming and you do have to make hooks with background knowledge and if you're talking at people for 20 minutes you're not getting feedback on necessarily how well they're understanding things the problem ironically with independent projects which are claimed to be all about skills-based learning is ironically a really similar problem that there's too much there's too much independence there's not enough structure and you don't know again where students are getting the misconceptions and they're getting things wrong whole class interactive teaching is teacher-led it's very structured But there's enormous amounts of response from the students. And in some of the cases, you know, it's the students, every five or ten seconds, there's something they have to do or act on to put into action what they're getting from the teacher. So I think, as I say, that balance metaphor, I understand why people do it, but I'm not sure it's that helpful. I think what we need is to totally kind of reconfigure our understanding of what a skill is. And, you know, the other example I I talk about a lot, I talk about lots of examples in in sports and, 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 and football is that, If you were teaching students how to play football, you definitely wouldn't say, well, you know, I'll lecture you about it. We'll read a book about it. And that's enough. You do have to be doing stuff. (laughs) But neither would you say, let's just play an 11-a-side match. That would be a problem too. um, Because there's not enough structure. There's not enough guidance. You're practicing at too high a level. You're not practicing the fundamental little skills you need, like passing the ball. So I think, again, you can look at it in, in a lot of walks of life. You know, trying to break it down between knowledge and skills and thinking that there's a balance between the two isn't helpful. If we instead start with the skill we want our students to have and then think, what are the building blocks of that skill? What do those building blocks look like? How do they acquire those? What is the best way of teaching those? That's the more effective method.
2: And how would you respond? So uh, there are these people who say, look, mm. these big multinational companies yeah. now who recruit graduates, mm. what do they say they're looking for? They yeah. say they're looking for critical thinking mm. and problem solving. And they design um, yeah. recruitment tools, yeah. which apparently yeah. test um, candidates' ability yeah. Yeah. to think critically. Yeah. And they'll say, look, we don't, we're not looking for people who can um, tell us mm. when the Second World War. We don't really we don't worry about that stuff. We want these big generic skills. And people are saying, well, look, the big employers mm. are recruiting. So why aren't we... It's to education focusing on that stuff.
0: So this, yeah, really interesting. And I have a section in the book about jobs of the future and what does this mean for the economy. So I think what you're saying there, first of all, I think we need to distinguish between different functions of education. So I think one really important function of education is to prepare students for a job, prepare them for the economy. Um, and I'll, So let's park that, that's one thing. But I, I, I don't think that is the whole purpose and I don't think that has ever been the whole purpose. And I think what's really interesting is that societies that have been much, much poorer than ours <laughs> have almost paid more attention to the non-economic aspects of education and the aspects of it that are about building character and developing you as a citizen and developing you as an adult who will be able to flourish and be happy and i think with all the discussion we're seeing about mental health i think we realize that that is important too we can't just be about preparation for that so i think we've got um, overlapping but relatively distinct purposes of education which i might just broadly say um you know To be productive, you know, have a a job and be a productive economic, you know, contribute to society, to be a kind of um, a good citizen, contribute democratically, you know, not just as economically and to be a flourishing and happy adult. You know, and I think they overlap. Like, I'm not saying they're completely distinct, but those purposes. So, if we do just zoom in, so so when you talk about, you know, you don't need to know about the Second World War, and you do a job. Well, yeah, probably. You know, you, you probably don't. But does that mean we shouldn't learn about the Second World War? Um, you know, the Second World War is a very important part of those other two two parts. Um, but just to, to zoom in on then on being a productive, you know, what what do we need to be to be productive in the economy and to be successful at jobs? So I think there's an interesting thing here between what employers say and then what they do. <laughs> and if we look at what and, and then it's also interesting to look at the evidence on what 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 are the skills that are really valuable in the job market. There's an enormous amount of evidence that the skills that are really valuable in the job market today are literacy and numeracy. Now you might say, well, isn't that trivially basic? Well, no, because obviously there is a level of literacy and numeracy at the basic level, and that's very economically valuable, but the research also shows that higher levels of literacy and numeracy are really valuable too. There's fascinating stuff about the one A-level subject which seems to really absolutely lead to higher earnings not just because of the kind of qualification that you have but genuinely the skills of of doing it uh, lead to higher earnings is maths okay so i think um if we're looking to prepare students well for the economy and we want to look at the evidence and actually what employers are doing and what the data says uh, rather than necessarily what employers are always saying i think we want to look at literacy and numeracy i think those are huge and i think there's huge gains to be had there's a really interesting economist eric hanashek where he's modeled out the implications of improving Um, society's average scores on the PISA, the International PISA Tests in Literacy and Numeracy. And both for the individual and for societies lead to enormous gains. You know, it has led to gains in the past, would lead to gains in the future. So I would say those are important. To come back to your one well, more, what about, you know, OK, well, maybe we do need literacy numeracy, but don't we need critical thinking, collaboration, problem solving too? So, yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, you do need to be able to think critically and solve problems. I think, again, it just comes back to what I'm saying is what sits underneath critical thinking and problem solving and to what extent are they domain-specific skills? So one of the favourite papers I read on this, it talks about creativity and it's a great paper. It's called um, Could Steven Spielberg Have Managed the Yankees? Um, and so it's a great paper about to what extent is creativity domain, domain-specific to what extent is it a transferable skill? And it makes a really interesting point that, look, in everyday life, of course, we talk about people as being creative and we talk about being them being critical thinkers, of course. And that's acceptable to do in everyday life. But often when we talk about it in our minds, we've got some kind of specific domain or, or, that we're thinking about. So when we talk about Steven Spielberg, he's so creative, we're thinking of him as a creative filmmaker. Um, And his point is, could Steven Spielberg have been a creative manager of a baseball team? And he concludes, probably not. And I think when we think about critical thinking and problem solving in that light, it's really interesting to think about, well, in, in, in your own life, think of an area in which you are a good critical thinker. Think of an area in which you're pretty good at solving problems do you think you are good at solving problems and critically in every other area you could think of, you know, if you dropped you into something else? So, you know, you think of a history professor who's probably very good at maybe, you know, analysing historical sources. Doesn't mean they're very good at thinking critically about, I don't know, problems in their own marriage. You know, I don't know, like maybe they are, right? But we can all think of people who are very good at thinking critically in one area, doesn't necessarily transfer to another. And the reason for that is that those skills are often, when you dig into it, dependent on domain-specific knowledge. Um, so in the case of Spielberg, real understanding of a lot of the, the technical aspects of, of filmmaking. In the case of the historian, a real understanding of the sources of the historical era that they're dealing with. You know, a mathematician, again, the, the understanding of the, the math problem. So, and you can extend this even into things like reading. Like we think of reading as being the absolute ultimate general skill. And in some ways it is important once you've got the ability to, to link you know, words and the letters and the sounds they make, that is really important. But I'd like to think of myself as a good reader. I've got a degree in English literature. But am I, if you gave me an unseen poem, you know I'm, I'm pretty good at having a stab at like knowing what that means and coming up with something interesting to say about it. If you give me a photocopier manual, <laughs> am I as good a reader? Um, do I have all of that background knowledge about photocopying to really understand what it says? So even something like reading is really dependent on background knowledge. So I do think things like critical thinking, collaboration, problem solving are important. I think when employers talk about them, they are actually talking about them in a more specific context than than, than is sometimes immediately aware.
2: We could talk about philosophy of education for hours and hours, couldn't we? (laughs) But I'm going to bring us back. I'm going to bring us right back to the classroom now because I think it's important and and pick up some other points you, you talk about in your book, which are really interesting. One of the things you talk about is, I think, a danger with technology that teachers need to be really aware of is is the technology supporting the learning or is it becoming a distraction? And you talk about that example you know, of pupils going off and doing a PowerPoint on a, yeah. a given topic and actually what they're thinking about and what they're focusing on is the interesting animations and making things swoosh in and out and they're not really thinking about the learning that the teacher thought they were thinking about. Could we, is it? Let's we talk a bit about how technology can be a distraction if you don't think about it
1: carefully.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is chapter five in the book, and it was in lots of ways like my favourite chapter to write. And I think it's a chapter that the the, the things I talk about in it will be I, I think they'll be really more, more more relevant in the coming years. And it's basically all about attention, attention and distraction. And I think this is a big issue going forward, not just for children in the classroom, but for adults. Yeah. And I think actually a lot of political debates in the in the next few, few years are going to be about about this about, fundamentally about this issue. So what I talk about is how attention is the currency of learning. In order to learn something, you have to pay attention to it. And attention in the in, in the wider economy and society is kind of uh, it's in demand as never before. And you can tell this because advertisers are essentially dealing attention. The cost of 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 of, of, of essentially getting a you know a milli a second of, of you know of, of people's eyeballs for a second has gone up and up and up over the last twenty years. And the reason it's gone up is because there's been huge demand um there's there's much more demand for people's attention and there's so much if you like there's so much free information free content out there that we can choose to pay attention to so i quote in this chapter herbert simon um who's an an economist and kind of an information theorist from the 1970s and way back in the 1970s he was saying information is becoming free you know it's becoming cheap uh, if, if not free and what happens when a good becomes free well the thing that it consumes um becomes expensive so what you've seen over the last 20, 30, 40 years is information getting more and more free. You know, the number of things you can go onto the internet and read for free. Um, what happens then is it's, uh, information consumes attention. So it's attention that becomes expensive and it's attention that becomes scarce. And the problem with attention as a commodity is it's limited. It's our working memories. <laughs> There's a, you know, you're not manufacturing any more of it. So all of our attention is under siege. And the other issue we've got is that two of the biggest internet companies... Facebook and Google their business models are built around advertising so their business models are built around grabbing your attention and that is a problem for education because education is also about attention and it's about paying attention what do you choose to pay attention to and so in the chapter I have on attention I look at the ways in which uh, a lot of devices are degrading our attention are stealing our attention and the way that a lot of the the apps and products and devices and devices that you know apps and products that are on the devices are designed to grab your attention. And there's that line, isn't there? If the product is free, you're the product. <laughs> when you're reading news for free on the internet, is it really free? Um, no. It's your attention being sold to advertisers, that's what's doing it. So it's not that I'm against advertising or think advertising is inherently bad, it's not the case at all. It's the point is that, that in order to get your attention, advertisers, internet platforms, are using more and more aggressive tactics. So the number of notifications, the number of pings on a phone, uh, the number of ways apps are set up to be sticky, to reduce friction, to make you want to use them at all times. Um, And you can see it with something like Snapchat, the Snapchat streak, where you've seen all these things about kids are building up streaks on Snapchat. And then if they are going away for a school trip for the weekend, they say, well, I can't leave my phone at home. I'll lose my Snapchat streak. Um, I also talk about how is it the, the, these tactics are they are they bad per se are they just always bad or if we turn them to useful ends is that is that okay so Duolingo have a streak Duolingo streak Duolingo the language learning app they also will monitor how many days you log in and they'll say you know try and keep logging in and if you get to you know a certain number of days you get a badge and what's interesting is the Snapchat streak there have been questions asked in parliament about it is this is this ethical is it ethical to be hooking in students to be just logging in to talk to a friend um, and it's being run by this kind of quite you know remote company with duolingo nobody ever seems to worry about that because it seems like well it's aimed at something more like a good end um so i think it's interesting i'm not that's what i'm saying these tactics some of them are not necessarily intrinsically good or bad it's about how they're being deployed um but the fundamental point is that these tactics are being deployed <laughs> our attention is kind of under siege uh and mobile phones are set up in a sense to be grabbing your attention the, the defaults on a lot of them are to have lots of notifications you download an app and the default is for it to be having lots of uh, lots of things that are constantly interrupting you um and as i say is that what we want is that what we want in the classroom is that going to promote learning so i think we have to think really carefully about how these devices are set up about how they're being used. One of the attractions of the multi-purpose device, like a phone or a tablet, is that you can do anything on it. The risk is, if you can do anything on it, you end up doing nothing because <laughs> you're constantly constantly uh, getting interrupted. So I think that's something not just for children but for adults over the next few years is going to be a big issue. And as I say, I think it's going to be a big issue about political regulation because I think um, people talk a lot about how Facebook and Google are stealing your data. I think you know, that's true, but in some ways, why do they want the data? They want the data because they want your attention. Actually, the more fundamental thing they're after isn't your data, it's your attention. It's the attention that the advertisers are paying for. In, in lots of ways, the data is just being used as a mechanism to more finely hone who, how you target to get people's attention. So I think we've got to think about that. And I think you've got to think about the ethical issues of introducing um, you know, big, if you like, advertising industrial complexes into the classroom at a really young age. Um, I think you've got to, got to think about what are the motivations behind some of these websites? What are the algorithms they're using? Are they just being set up to be more and more sensationalist? I've got into reading a lot of stuff by tech ethicists. So there's a, lot, a big movement now, actually, within Silicon Valley of, of tech ethics. And what's really interesting is the people who are doing this, they're not Luddites. They're not uh, like crusty old people who hate, hate modern technology. What's really striking is how many of these guys have worked for, for big tech companies and have become you know, really quite unhappy with the results of some of the things they've done. So one of the ones who's most interested in Tristan Harris, he used to work for Google and he's now launched the Time Well Spent movement, which is all about, um, you know, thinking more intentionally about how you're using your time. And one of the things he talks about is so many of the, the, the incentives on, 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 on apps, he calls it a race to the bottom of the brainstem. Because it's always the more sensational, the more dramatic, the more outrageous. And you can see that on, on social media, right? What are the yeah. things that, are, that get promoted? I talked about with Flat Earth. What are the videos that get promoted that get people's attention? Um, and it's that when you're in that moment, it's that, I love that phrase, the race to the bottom of the brainstem. You know, it's that sensational thing on the YouTube sidebar that you're going to click on. Um, but actually, if you step back and thought about it, do you really want to be spending your time like that? You know, if you were giving it some 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 concrete thought, is that how you would be choosing to spend your time? And I think we have to think about that with children, too, who maybe have, um, you know, <clears throat> uh, uh, is that how we want them to be spending their time?
2: And I guess one obvious yeah. response is, isn't it, well, yeah. this is exactly the role of schools, isn't it? That, you know, we teach, we should yeah. be teaching children yeah. about this stuff and we should be teaching them about, if you like, impulse control yeah. and maintaining attention. My question is... How realistic is that? So, we've got these companies who are multi billion uh, companies who can invest huge amounts of money into developing ways to get your attention, to keep you on their site. And here we are as two grown adults, and Mm -hmm. I'm happily to say I get distracted (laughs) by the red thing popping up on Twitter and it gets sucked into you've enjoyed that YouTube video, you may enjoy this one, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, how realistic is it Mm -hmm. it that we can teach? children and young people, if you like, to be able to uh, (laughs) win this war against the companies who are competing for their attention. Absolutely.
0: I think that's a really good point. I think that's when you hear a lot of people talk about, well, look, we don't need to ban devices in schools. We don't need to ban technology. We need to manage it. And I think in principle, I do agree we have to manage manage it because I, I do agree that you you know, you know can't set up school, if you like, as a, an environment that has no link to the outside world. The fact is, in the real world, devices are being used. So I accept that point that school can't be a hermetically sealed environment cut off from the real world. I do think, however, um, that in some ways what a lot of people in the real world are realising is that in order to manage these devices, maybe you do have to be a bit more aggressive. So I think you're absolutely right to say that if grown adults get sucked into some of these spirals of YouTube video clicking, um, it is unrealistic to expect children to be able to... We can't rely on, on just self-discipline. And I think it's actually quite cruel to say, you know, if you get sucked into a YouTube spiral, it's just not self-disciplined enough. It's your own problem. You need, you need better tactics to manage it. I think that's quite unfair to say to an adult, and I think it's incredibly unfair to say to a 14-year-old. I think what you have to do is create an environment in which those temptations are not there... And we see this in all other walks of life, right? People say, if you want to go on a diet, like, don't, don't torment yourself by having a batch of chocolate chip cookies sitting in the kitchen. You know, clear the food out so you're not tempted. So I think what worries me is so much of the debate about how we teach students to manage devices becomes very moralistic. It's all about a student having to resist temptation. And what I'm saying is... You're never going to resist them because these guys have got banks of data, they've got oodles of money, they've got some of the smartest brains in the world, and their task is to get you to click on something. <laughs> and, you know, they, 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 it's an unequal fight. So, it's like
2: telling children to eat healthier. Exactly. It's the same thing. And, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's like telling a kid to eat healthier while surrounding everything they see with just, just, just chocolate in all a the sweet time. sweet Yeah, in a yeah. sweet shop. <laughs> yeah. So you think we have to be providing an environment that makes the healthy option, that makes the right option a bit easier. Mm. And so that's why I think there is absolutely a role for no, you know, environments with no devices. I was going to ask that. So yeah. where, do, where do you stand?
2: Yeah. I, it's funny, it's been in the news quite a lot recently, I know recently about yeah. schools talking about having mobile phones, allowing pupils to bring in their mobile phones yeah. and schools that ban them. Where, where do you stand on yeah, that? Yeah,
0: I think on principle, you know, on, on balance, I would be going with the ban. Um, and I think all these things, the devil's always in the detail. You want to look at, look at you know, how it manifests itself. But I think what you've got to look at, what is the mobile phone, the, the modern mobile phone? The modern mobile phone, in lots of ways, is a device for distraction. So there's a fascinating study I, I cite in the book, which is about you give students um, a task to do. If their mobile phone's in sight, they do worse on the task. They'll get like a lower IQ score. So even if their mobile phone is turned off, if their mobile phone is within sight, it's harder for them to concentrate on other things their IQ scores are like compromised they do worse Um, whereas if the phone is in another room they can't see it they're doing better because even just the sight of the phone is the thought of all the messages you might be getting, all the things that might be happening, <laughs> uh, the other things that are going on, and it's taking part of your attention. And
2: I guess as adults, yeah. we've all had that moment where you set, you're set yeah. at your computer meant to be doing something, and the Absolutely. phone is just there. I mean, I read a, I've read a funny
0: phone. thing by someone the other day. I said, you know, do you think Shakespeare would have written thirty seven plays <laughs> if he was doing it on a laptop that let you check the football scores every five minutes? <laughs> So as well as banning phones, I also talk about other tactics. And look, I'm saying banning phones. I'm not saying I think just kids should do it. When I wrote, was writing bits of this book, I would put my phone in another room. I would, I would switch it. The other th- uh, thing I use quite a lot is I used an app called Freedom. Um, and there's a few other different versions of, of this. But what it does is it just lets an internet blocker. So it just lets you block the internet for a little bit of time. So you can set it up to say, right, I want 30 minutes. And you can block the whole internet or you can just block certain sites. Right. So I would set it up, right, you know, 45 minutes, no checking the cricket scores. <laughs> um, and then you just know you've got this 45 minutes where you're not being tempted. Um, so this is something, as I say, I do think there's a place for phone bans and not just for kids. Uh, I think for, for adults too. I'm not being, you know, insensitive or critical here. Like, I've, I've banned the phone myself in my own life. And I think, you know, explaining to... I think actually the other thing I find is when you explain to students about advertising and the internet economy I think that does cut through and I think they're much more understanding of oh yeah hang on a minute like it's not just about me keeping in touch with my mates Uh, it's not just about me posting some cool photos there is something else going on above this (laughs) and I think when you explain that I think students often like when you realise there is an element of manipulation there that does tend to cut through Um, I think on its own that isn't enough but I think that helps them to realise like, why it is important to, to give yourself time without a phone, without a device, or without one that is connected to the internet.
2: And it sounds a bit like we're getting a bit anti-tech here, and, yeah. and your book very much isn't anti-tech. <laughs> yep. um, yeah. I, I suppose everyone's always searching for what's the, what's the yeah. next big thing yeah. in ed tech, and you know, yeah. what's going to be the thing that really yeah. makes the difference. And one of the things I'm, you talk about quite positively in the book is this idea of adaptive learning. And how technology can kind of support adaptive yeah. learning—is—is yeah. yeah. is that the next big thing? Is it already here? And, and what is it? More
1: importantly, <laughs> yeah.
0: So I think adaptive learning. Yeah, I think it is really interesting, and I think there's huge potential for it. It's not in some ways that new. People have been talking about it since the late late 60s. They called it intelligent tutoring systems, and the idea behind adaptivity is just you're trying to respond to a student, uh, you know, adapt to their needs in the way that a good teacher would. Mm-hmm. Um, So if you're thinking a student is is doing a math problem and they get the first step wrong, uh, a good teacher might go, oh, hang on a minute, just have a little look at that, you know, just direct their attention to the step they've got wrong and might prompt them a little bit more to say, okay, you know, let's just start, let's go back, let's think, what did we do last week on this? (laughs) The idea with adaptive algorithms is to try and do something similar. So again, if a student is on the computer solving a math problem, they put in the first step wrong, it might give them a hint, it might direct them to look up last week's lesson, it might then just be very blunt and say look this is what you should have put you know it might go through a series of hints that's ultimately what adaptive systems you know it's the kind of thing that they're doing and they can be you can they vary from the pretty simple to the incredibly complex <laughs> so the really complex ones have kind of got billions of different pathways through content so you know you can almost imagine the whole of maths as like you know a series of nodes and of questions and of, of topics and Every student starts with the same question, and depending on whether they get it right or wrong, are essentially navigating their own unique, personalised pathway An through entire that entire curriculum. Yeah, um, yeah okay. right. Um, so, whereas you know, something simpler is ones that maybe just have a few options. That well, if you put this answer, have a look at this 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 worksheet. If you looked at if you, you know, if you put this answer, look at this fact sheet or whatever. The other interesting thing around them is they can also probably calibrate the amount of practice you need to your strengths and weaknesses. So. I talked before about the space repetition algorithms. So the idea that you've got 100 French, French, French words you need to learn. Everyone will have a slightly different you know, need for spending a bit more time on some than on others. So the algorithm is adapting to you. It's saying you know, you've got this word wrong three times in the past week, so that's one you need to work on. You've got this one right every single time, so we'll, we'll cut down on the amount of times you're practising that. They can also sort of dish up the questions at just the right moment, um, again, based on the idea of where, where is the forgetting curve. So you don't want to be cramming. If you've got 100 French words to learn, you don't want to study them all 100 times in one day. You're better off spacing out that practice, uh, and the algorithms will present that to you in the right way. So I think the, yeah, the potential for adaptive, uh, adaptive systems, spaced repetition algorithms is, is, is really powerful. I think they do depend, though, on um, the content being broken down and the content being mapped out. So, in, as I say, in the case of a lot of the adaptive systems, they've got them for maths, they've got them for foreign languages, in other subjects. I think in some ways, we're just less clear about what the, the, the content, uh, how it should be broken down. And you can also distinguish some adaptive systems come with the content preloaded. Others let you add your own content. So... In a sense, that's you know, the strengths and weaknesses of both approaches, and I talk about those in my book, and a lot of it, if you're a teacher and you want to use one of these things, it will come down to how much capacity you have.
2: And the age-old question, will we ever get to a stage where technology replaces the teacher? So that adaptive yeah. learning yeah. where you're just explaining, where you yep. can have an entire yeah. personalised yeah. curriculum that yeah. based on your yeah. misconceptions and the answers yeah. you get correct, it takes you on a pathway, you could potentially <clears throat> have an entire maths curriculum and no need for yeah. a teacher ever physically be present in the room? Yeah. Will will we ever get to that yeah. stage where we don't need physical teachers anymore? Yeah.
0: So, that, a great question, and one that I've thought about a lot, and it is, in the end, all just speculation. Um, I do have a chapter where I talk about this. On balance, my argument is I don't, I don't think you will. Um, I think there'll always be a need for a human. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one is... Um, there's an extent to which humans, often particularly young children, embody a subject and embody learning. And I think one of the big debates about all of these things is we're not brains in a jar. You know, we are human beings, we're human bodies. And there's all kinds of interesting research, some of which I cite in the book, about young children. If you play, if you play a human voice on a, on a TV screen, you know, the humans on the TV screen talking, and you have some 18-month-olds listening to it, they, they, won't, they won't pay attention. If you have the same adult in person saying the same things, the eighteen-month-olds will turn around and pay attention. So there does seem to be something around the physicality of a human being, you know, in the room is is important. Um, and I think that a lot of the, the 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 really optimistic talk about online courses, I think it's often uh, done by sort of you know, and the stats are true on this. It's done by very well-motivated, very smart, uh, uh, sort of late 20-something, often men, <laughs> who have been very successful in the education system and are very well-motivated. And if you look at kind of the big university online courses, they're often doing those and doing well with them. And I'm not going to knock those. I think that's amazing. And again, you know, the, the the amount of free education out there that is of really high quality is, is impressive. Um, is that the same as teaching a seven-year-old to read? Uh, like, you know, it's different. So I I think you are going to need humans and there is something as i say about humans embodying learning embodying the subject which we can't forget and i think if you push down this road you do get into a slightly dystopic future where you have a you know children on their own at home sitting in front of a, a computer screen um you know getting rewarded for points if they're getting things right and um you know not if they're getting things wrong and never sort of interacting with with others so you know i'm I don't think it can do everything. For, for me, it's, it's doing a part of that, and it's giving the teacher useful information. Um, and the teacher is using that information to become better at teaching. The student can learn more about it. It can do personalisation that's very, very hard for a teacher to do. So I don't think you will necess- I don't, you, 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 you will get to that point. Um, I think you will always need both. So I think you just never want to forget that, ultimately. Are you trying to design technology for the sake of technology or are you trying to design it for humans (laughs) are you trying to design it to make our world better to make the way humans live better to make the way children learn better or are you just doing it because you can do it Mm. and for me maybe the theme of the book (laughs) is we want to use technology to make our lives better not just because we can do stuff
2: and that seems to be the perfect place (laughs) to finish so the book is called teachers versus tech and it's out
0: it's out on the 5th of march
2: brilliant yeah. Thank you very much.
0: Brilliant, great James. For regular and useful content on the teaching profession, it has to be the School Leadership Podcast. The
1: School Leadership Podcast. That's all from us for this month. We hope you enjoyed our extended interview with Daisy. Now, we always like to hear from you, so please do get in touch with us if you have feedback or, indeed, ideas for future guests. We would love to hear those. You can drop us a line at this email address, policy at Policy at uk. Don't forget you can subscribe to all our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you like what you heard this month, please leave us a review and let us know. NAHT is a professional association and union for schools leaders. NAHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being an NAHT Edge or NAHT member, go online to nhtedgeorguk forward slash join or wwwnhtorguk forward slash join. You can follow us on Twitter. Our accounts are at NAHT EDGE and at NAHT News.